Hello and welcome to The Convex Conversation with me, journalist Helen Fosbery. This week I'm chatting to the real-life Mrs Patmore. From ostrich eggs to beaks and feet, Downton Abbey food stylist Lisa Heathcote has tackled it all. Lisa was not only a regular above and below stairs at Highclere Castle, making sure the early 20th century fare looked the part, tasted good and was historically accurate. She's worked on many, many of our favourite dramas, adverts and films, including Cold Mountain, Outlander, The Duchess and Love in a Cold Climate. Lisa was in charge of the food styling on another of my favourite period shows, Bridgerton, and is currently working on the second much-anticipated series for Netflix. And I am feeling really lucky this morning because I'm having coffee and cake in Lisa's kitchen, which I can tell you is a really magical place. Lisa, thank you so much for inviting me here. It's like a little Aladdin's cave of <laughs> moose moulds and gadgets and equipment. Can yeah, you describe it, it for us? Well, oh my God. Well, yes, it's where I live most of my life. Every cupboard is crammed, absolutely. I've got a lifetime's collection of moulds. In fact, I started when I was really quite young, before I, this job even I knew existed. I used to collect little aspic moulds. I mean, obviously, I was destined to be a food stylist. But I've got them from when I was 13. I've always kept them. Despite my travels, moving house, I've always never lost my aspic moulds. So I've got, oh God, my cupboard, my big, big cupboard, my, which is a bit of a sort of Mary Poppins cupboard that I just cram things in. And it's where we kind of live. And it's tidy at the moment. This is my idea of tidy. But most of the time, I sort of come in through the front door. The job comes in and all my boxes and paraphernalia everything all just gets dumped on the floor and then we kind of have supper or whatever is coming around and we sort of sit well you can see on the table I've got some of my cakes but that actually not it wasn't even art directed that's just like they've been plonked there and I'd forgotten I thought oh well I'll leave those that's all right that looks okay for you to see but yeah I mean my poor children I mean they're grown up now but they come home from school and the table might be sort of groaning with chocolate eclairs or something you know sort of a hundred chocolate eclairs for a job they were only allowed to look at it because it was going to go for a job as they grew up the sentence was mummy is this food we can eat or food that we have to look at (laughs) (laughs) and their friends would come back and they'd sort of you know their eyes would light up and say sorry you can't have any this is for a job no you're not allowed to touch circle it's the molds that have really caught my attention you've got beautiful copper molds on a shelf in your kitchen i wonder what it what was it with that fascination at a young age with those kinds of things i've always liked a blancmange mold yes just something about the intricacy of, the, of, you know, the moulds and the work that's gone into it. And, I mean, that's, you know, over the years, wherever I go, I mean, I drive my other half completely mad. We're just anywhere in the countryside, just, just going to pop in here and see if I can find something interesting, some kitchen ephemera, you know, and in a sort of junk shop or, uh, you know, Oxfam or, you know, charity shops, because they're a kind of rich source, you know, and I'm sort of, I'm happy, you know, up to my elbows in all sorts of stuff, just trying to find something. And that's, you know, it's great in the countryside. I grew up in the countryside, but fabulous when people, sort of, years ago, people would be getting rid of ice cream moulds, which were these computer ones. I, I've got some over there, I'll show you later. And they're, they're just so boring looking because they're just pewter lumps, but you open them up because they're hinged and they'd be sort of fruits and things. And this is what the Victorians, you know, they, they make their ice cream and make these beautiful little fruits, which are wonderful. And so for films, obviously, I can't do ice cream because that would be a complete road to hell. That wouldn't work but, with the lights. No, no, that would be <laughs> absolute nightmare. But I, I make them out of marzipan or, dare I say, like kind of fondant icing or something and just colour them up and then pile them up. And it's just, it's art, I guess. I do food that is sort of art, if you like, but it's a hybrid. I'm part of set deck. So the process is the script comes in for whatever production it is and they we tease out where the food is and what it might be. And then I've got to, if it's an historical piece like Bridgerton or although that's very loose, which is great because I can be off. I can, Lisa goes large. <laughs> as, as Gina. Oh, well, that's <laughs> the beauty of Bridgerton, This is Lisa, Lisa goes large. You can just go with it, Lisa. But Downton is much more tight. We've got to be very, very historically accurate. So I've got to think about the food being historical. And I also do contemporary food. I've, yeah, I've been doing Ted Lasso, so that's contemporary. And I do occasionally have this sort of nightmare days where I wake up and I think, is it 
you know, is it the chicken pie or is it the mousse? What, where am I going today? What century am I in? So we decide what the food is. And then, of course, I've got to create it. And then sometimes it might be scripted that Mrs. Patmore takes the chicken leg off or slices the chicken leg off the chicken. So if you imagine, you can't just cook one chicken because there's going to be 25 takes. I then try and have a conversation to persuade them not to cut the chicken leg off. <laughs> <laughs> or the slicing the cake. Slicing the cake is always, we're we just about to do a Bridget and slice the cake. I cannot tell you. I mean, that's, we're slicing some cake and all the paraphernalia, we've just got to have, we make about 28. So we, we've got a huge, I don't think I'm spoiling, I'm saying we've got a, you know, a, a large, large cake, should I say, for a specific purpose. And we're, so we're having to cheat it. So, most of the cake is not real, but the bottom bit of the cake, which is like a little round satellite cake, is real. So I'm just going to have to keep putting that in. They take a slice, take it out, put another real cake in and sort of decorate it with flowers. And hopefully we can get away with that. So you'll make a number of satellite cakes yes, and just yes. keep replacing the yes, real bit. Yes, yes. So, it, oh, yeah, hopefully, I'm. you know, that's... In a couple of weeks' time, so I'm sort of building up to that one. That's because I've got to do all the moulding exactly the same as the big cake, and that was a model maker made the big cake, and so it's all lots and lots of meetings to talk about bits and edging and filigree work, and you know, have you got this mould and is this going to work? So it gets a bit complicated. What so, I loved about Bridgerton is is the way Bridgerton has gone a bit wild. I love all the the fancy costumes and how it's not your traditional period drama. Yeah. So I could imagine Lisa goes wild. Yeah, which, which has been fun because I, I'm working with a lot of people that I work with on Bridgerton and we sort of moved on, uh, sorry, Downton. And um, so the constraints, you know, which had its joy with, uh, with Downton to be so historically accurate. So much thought went into that because on the Downton food, we had food below stairs very much with Mrs. Patmore that we then would have to see upstairs, which would probably be, maybe we'd film it the other way around. Maybe we'd film them eating upstairs, the meal. And then six weeks later, we would be filming that meal being prepared by Mrs. Patmore downstairs. So then I've got to break down all those components. I have to do lots and lots of photographs for continuity. And then in the script, we'd sort of work out where she was in preparing the dinner or the lunch or wherever it was. So everything that they did in the kitchen was never random. It always fitted in time to what was going on upstairs. So it used to get so complicated because I'd then have to kind of dream up things that Mrs. Patmore's got to do, who Leslie would openly admit she's not a cook. She's so, not. No, she's, so she's not a natural wooden spoon holder or knife holder. You know, it doesn't come naturally. So well, she I, looks it. Or yes. I suppose she's an actress, yeah. but she looks at you. Obviously, have you helped her with yes. that? Yes. So I would say, she'd say, what am I doing? What am I doing? I would maybe just simple simplicity say I would have done like 20 little tarts or something and put them all on the table. And then there'll be just three that she's going to fill. And then the viewer would make the jump between, oh, Mrs. Patmore's done all those tarts. She's actually doing one simple action, which is maybe putting the grape on that tart just there. And so we imagine that she's done all the other work. Of course, she hasn't. And then, you know, I'd sort of we, as we as we worked together for years, yes, you know, because you've been on Downton since the beginning. Yeah, right? from day one. When I got a nice, I got an email from Gina, who's the set decorator, saying, "Could you keep February clear for a nice little period drama?" We didn't know. We didn't know what we were letting ourselves in for. Oh so. my goodness! Who and, would have thought it would be so successful in yeah, so many series? It and was. Film? Yeah, I remember day one pinning in the grapes and cooking bacon, which hadn't been discussed in the buttery. So the entire sort of house of Highclere smelt of cooked bacon because we were doing this scene, bacon and egg. So they were none too happy. So <laughs> from that moment, I was asked to cook my bacon in the car park outside. So from that day forward, I was always outside, which is probably a better thing, actually, because the buttery was a long way from the dining room. And I obviously, my bacon skills are not very high. So, <laughs> so wafts of bacon in the drapes wasn't good. So I would be then outside. And Highclere has its own sort of microclimate, which is Freezing. I mean, it's north. The front is north facing. Oh my so in goodness. the winter, it would honestly, it would be sort of like 
five, you know, up to 10 below, I think, one, one winter. So we had this one barking moment when, oh, I'd get there and we had to do, I remember, because the script would be, oh, the veal chops are rather large. So I, obviously that means I've got to get large veal chops because it's scripted and I've got to cook them and the actors are going to eat them as well. So I've got to get a lot and I'm in my easy up on the north face of the house and it's seven o'clock in the morning and the snow's coming down and the gravy froze in the gravy boat. Oh, I'm doing no. Gravy. And the peas froze in the terrine. As we're putting, it was that cold. It was just literally, as I put any water or anything, it just froze up. So oh it was goodness. absolute madness. I cannot tell you. Eventually, I, I was kind of given a truck. <laughs> How nice of them. And then, yes, because we had to do souffles. I think I did a film of my souffle in the film. A souffle. A souffle. Now, that must be really tricky yeah, to do a souffle for telly. A souffle for telly. Not only that, it's got to get from my truck across the North Rose and Garbuck, through the door, through the hall and into the dining room. So I just kept batch cooking them because I wouldn't know how long the take would be. You've got a rough idea, but it might take slightly longer. So I, and I don't know whether my souffles are going to rise perfectly. The main thing is they don't want to wait for you. They're not going to wait for the souffle because it's about the drama. I'm a bit of props, basically. I'm edible props. (laughs) Edible props. I'm I'm an edible prop. So they're not going to be particularly happy if they've got to wait for me to take the souffles out the oven. So I just kept cooking, just kept cooking. I had an assistant. We just kept going all morning making these souffles. And then if the time happened that they'd finish the scene and then we could run through with the next lot of souffles and plonk them on the table and we'd sort of get away with it. But we'd have to run through all the, all the jennies, all these enormous great big trucks with all the electrics. And so we'd be sort of squeezing past there with our trays of souffles and running through the door. It's never straightforward. People kind of don't understand the, the nature of how difficult it is to get a, the food there, it was sort of like the beginning this week, we had to get, we were in Goldsmiths, Goldsmiths Hall. And of course, it's just negotiating the stairs and the parking and the parking water. I mean, you know, the film company makes space for you, but you've still got to get all your stuff out, up the stairs, in a space, set up, create the thing, dress it in, and then leave and not spill it on the carpet. Awesome, doesn't it? Uh, actually, talking about spilling of the carpet, I've got to share a very brief story with you. My mum used to make baked Alaska every Christmas day Ooh. because as children, we didn't really like Christmas pudding, which now I've realised was amazing, her Christmas pudding. Yeah. And she used to make baked Alaska and, you know, with the sort of ice cream in the middle and the, the, oh, yeah, the, 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 the what's it, the meringue yeah. outside, flash bake it. Yeah, yeah. She'd hide a little eggshell in the top and put some alcohol in it and light it. Yeah, and fantastic. I'll never forget oh, one Christmas good. day when we're all sitting there crammed around the table in our little dining room and mum tripped and it Ooh. slipped off and it just splodged on the carpet <laughs> and I sort of when, we were, when I was prepping this interview I was thinking of you thinking god I wonder if you ever have any calamities and you've just made something wonderful and then you trip over a camera cable or something oh yeah no, I've done that have you done that oh my god yeah I actually did it I oh but thank god it was after the scene I was picking everything up I think it was trifles and things and I tripped over actually the, one of the sandbags, which is at the front there, propping my front door open. I kind of got it as a memento. They have sandbags to weigh things down so the lights don't fall over and things. And down I went, and all I could see was the leather wallpaper coming towards me of high And I'm thinking, do I save myself or do I save the wallpapers? <laughs> <laughs> And I actually saved the wallpaper. So I just went down like a ton of bricks. And most of it went over me because I just went down with everything. And uh, I got away with it. So thank God that was okay. But one of my worst problems are often on set, and especially at the high care, dogs. I go to a lot of fabulous houses. It's a great job because I, can, I go to a lot of stately homes because I do a lot of period dramas. So I go to the sort of great stately homes. So of course, there's always the family retainer. There's always a dog. There's always a dog or lots of dogs. So that's my main problem is I've kind of put something down where I might be working. And then I find that somebody's got their nose in it. So we were supposed to be doing this banquet. So I had lots of huge joints of ham and beef and pies and all things meaty and delicious. And it's 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning because you have to start really early. And I'm standing there and I... 
the hunt puppies were being taken for a walk and I can see coming around the corner and across the lawn rather a lot of dogs. Oh, no, no. <laughs> and they see me and I see them. And they, and they smell and you they, then. they came bounding up the lawn. I'm like, I was literally standing with my arms out doing, like, to do rugby tackles, trying to beat, the, you know, beat them off the food. And thank God it was extraordinary. My lovely art department arrived all at the same time. And we were like a kind of set of complete mad women trying throwing ourselves on, on the beef, going, get off. And uh, fortunately, we managed to say, I mean, I think one Labrador ran off with the joint, but we managed to say, fortunately, they weren't eating it. So this was just literally set decorating. So I just had to sort of cover over the teeth marks, <laughs> just sort of a lot of flat leaf parsley and uh, a bit of paint and... Uh, plonked it on the table and we got away with it and nobody was eating it. It was literally just the sort of reference in the script. Doesn't this look wonderful? I think, yeah, I think it was the Shirley MacLaine picnic. It's like a military operation what you do because you've got to work out what's being eaten, what's not being eaten. Yes. What will survive the lights and what won't survive the lights? And what are the secrets of the trade when, you know, they're doing lots of takes and you've got something that still has to look good throughout the shoot? Well, the one thing, yeah, we used to do this thing called chicken fish or fishy chicken. because it's always being scripted salmon mousse or salmon, lovely salmon. Well, of course, you, the one thing you don't want on set is fish because it just gets really smelly and really unpleasant. So I've got to cheat that. So I've, I've managed to get a great recipe together, which is like cream cheese and lemon, and then I colour it. Then I can do 101 things with cream cheese and a bit of colour. I tell you, and it's delicious, darling, absolutely delicious. If I make my jellies... They're inedible, frankly, because I just put so much gelatine in. So I set them like rock and I can get about three days out of them. And then, you know, which is fine. Yeah. So don't eat jelly in your kitchen. If you're arriving or not home, just don't don't touch the the jelly. jelly. So what you do is, so we have a fabulous looking shimmering jelly that's out of my mould. And actually... The jelly that would have come out of those moulds in Victorian period would have been set quite hard because they're using calves' hooves. You know, we tend to buy gelatine now and we're used to these wonderful soft sets, you know, all these lovely panna cotta that just gently wobble and they're all very light. They were making gelatine with calves' hooves, so it was a much firmer set, So, which is why I think, you know, they were able to kind of get things out of these jelly moulds. I'm slightly doing that, but taking it a bit further. So mine are like rock, basically, and they bounce. And I have dropped, I you're asking about dropping things. I have dropped a few jellies in my time. Do you have to be careful with the costumes and with actors? Yes, yes. Oh, God, yes. That is a big, big thing. Another thing about what they're eating, and then sometimes it's scripted that, they have an accident and it's got to land on their knee. And then it might be scripted that the fish lands on their knee. Uh, we did have that again, going back to Downton, which total nightmare because it's got to be edible. It's got to be throwable onto a silk dress. It's got to be scripted accurately. It's all these things. It's all things to every man. So I managed to get some pretend prawns that I coated in parsley. So they look very realistic. I just put a little bit of parsley, no oil. How did I do that? And then it all had to fall off. That's it. The whole plate had to fall into her lap. Violet's lap. Oh, Violet. Dame Maggie's Dame lap. Dame Maggie's lap. Oh, my goodness. So it was all, it was all, yes, it was all a bit of a nightmare. How did um, she feel about that? I don't, she, I don't think she was entirely happy, but we managed to pull it off and we didn't do it too many times. So. <laughs> um, and, and then fortunately, and then we just sort of slipped a bit of cucumber. That's it. My, in my toolkit, I always have a cucumber and some watercress. If you're an actor and you've got to eat something all day, you're probably going to get cucumbers about it, really, because people who are professional know that once you start at the top of the scene, at the top of the day, that's what you're going to be doing all day oh, long. I never thought so about that. So if you that. sit down and, you know, and I've seen it with actors who sort of not perhaps as well seasoned, you know, and they go, oh, delicious pie, off we go, and sort of take, 25, they're looking a little green around the gills. (laughs) (laughs) But they've started, they're going to have to finish. You mentioned Leslie, who plays one of my favourite characters, Mrs Patmore. I also absolutely love Sophie, who plays Daisy. Do you have much to do with Daisy because Daisy's in the kitchen? Is she absolutely gorgeous? Oh, she's divine. She's absolutely lovely. And we all kind of, yeah, I think, you know, they'd say we sort of kind of got a kind of going friendship, going, you know, sort of in the kitchen, as it were. They'd say, what's we doing? Because Daisy... 
also, bless her, you know, she doesn't know much about food because why would they? They're actresses. And the thing is, sometimes it also might be scripted that they've got to do something quite difficult. And I always say, just don't get them chopping because an actor's got to say their lines and concentrate on that. And if you're not naturally a cook, that's quite a big ask, actually. So just try and make it simple for them. So and, you yeah. lays with the, with the yes. script and she, people. And... We would have a laugh. She'd go, what have you got me doing today? And I go, can you do this? Look, you've got a bird here. You go, no, I don't want to touch it. I don't want to touch it. <laughs> All right. Because if you're not, you know, I'm, I'm a country girl. I'm used to sort of guts and... Because that's the thing. It's about, you know, everything had heads. It was much more real then. We had beaks and feet and all of that. So I'm being historically accurate. And she'd come and go, oh, no, what is that? That's revolting. But of course, the viewers think it's great. But, you know, it's a bit of a shock sort of in your face. Because actually, I think it's a vegetarian. So I think it's a bit, a bit real bit real sort of dead animal what happens if any of the actors are vegan or veggie oh, and it's scripted that they're totally. tucking into veal pie do oh, you make something fake for them that is absolutely and it's becoming frequently more and more and more everybody just eats air and light and there's no <laughs> what if you're an actress you've got to eat air and light <laughs> yeah, they only eat air and, light. and it's things like oh god i won recently so this character killed somebody and the director wanted to meet in spare ribs so I get the phone call and it's always really worrying when they say, it's just a few spare ribs, Lisa. Could you just rustle some up for Wednesday? And I go, the sentence is, it's just simple, always. It's like a nightmare. So then it comes back and goes, oh, he's vegan. So I, oh, okay, well, could we just put them on the plate? Maybe just eats the, you know, the lettuce. No, no, he wants them to eat the spare ribs. So if he's vegan, you've got to honor that. So we ended up, oh my God, I had to have dowels, wooden dowels steamed to be, so they were slightly bent. I then had to, I've got this, there's this stuff called setan, which frankly I think is the work of the devil, but other people like it. I made these sort of uh, meaty things and I flavoured it, you know, and for all the world, they looked absolutely, they looked fantastic actually. <laughs> Even though I say so myself. And he got away with it. And he's, you know, I've dyed the dowels, painted, and then I have to paint everything. We've also had like, raw meat again back to the cream cheese i managed to just put it through a mincer and it looks just like raw meat so yeah there's many many things uh, uh, cream cheese comes up a lot i could do all sorts of things you should have shares in cream cheese, <laughs> cream cheese i can do all sorts and of you're things right you're, you're an artist aren't you i mean it's yeah. art it's not yeah i know we'll talk about your background in a minute and cooking and things and so obviously you're a fabulous cook but this isn't Always really cooking, isn't it? It's, no, it's creating artwork. It is. I might do a, a kind of ridiculous sort of, because when everything's on the table, when we have all the food on the table and then the actors are sitting around, so they'll have their food on their dinner plate, but they're looking, if you like, with all these dishes on the table. So I can do all the dishes on the table and, and make those look fabulous and they don't actually touch those. What they're eating is the food off their plate. So we'll be refreshing the food on their plate and that's what's sitting there all day. And then, you know, after so many takes, we just, what we call refresh, put new food on because it's been sitting around for several hours. Because nobody eats a meal for sort of 10 hours, do they? You know, and that's the thing. And after a while, the food on the plate is going to look really sad and you probably don't want to eat it. So you're going to have to sort of throw it away and start again. But the stuff in the middle, looking on the table, banquety on the table, will look fabulous. And that is all perked up and painted and stuck on the plate because that's the thing. I have to pin everything in and stick it onto the plate because they might say, okay, we're now going to do this end of the table. So they'll split the table and drop the camera in so it gives a nice close-up on whoever's at the top of the table and so all the food on the table obviously is going to have to be moved so the prop boys however gentle they may be will pick up everything and everything's going to be carted around and moved and put over there so it's got to be you know robust enough that it's not going to wobble off the plate or collapse it's not like just laying the table and having a meal it's got to be it's got to stay there. It's got to be used to storms. It's got to be appropriate for vegans. It's, yeah, many things, many things. And of course, as you said earlier, it has to be historically accurate. Yeah. How much do you enjoy the research that I presume oh, you I do love, to make yeah. sure it's right? I mean, yes, because we're down here, but I've got my, I've got a lifetime of 
books and and again you know wandering around finding finding fabulous books and uh, um, you know sort of historical books and I love and also the hilarious things in the 50s you know I've got some fantastic gelatine books with things that you just cannot believe you know with blue mashed potato and all that I love all that Fanny Craddock world and all those are such fun love doing those I did Endeavour which is vaguely in that world you know so doing cocktail sticks with you know the hedgehog with the cheese and pick up that's fun that's just fun and all the historical stuff I mean I wonderful Ivan Day you should talk to Ivan actually he's amazing he's he's the foods historian's food historian I mean I I sort of talk to him and and he knows everything what he doesn't know is not worth talking about and he's great. So if I get really stuck about something, I can call him. And he's so ger- generous with his knowledge. And I've done, you know, I've learned with him over the years. He, he used to sort of do lessons and things. So I love all that. And then there are people like me, food historians, that we just sort of exchange information. So there's a whole world out there of food historians and people who enjoy living and cooking in an historical fashion. And I've got a fantastic friend in America, Dolly, and she she's, oh God, yes. I did Alienist in Budapest, which was for Paramount. And Ranhofer is the chef who cooked at this very, very famous restaurant in New York. And this is so, it was amazing. It was a huge production. Because we were in Budapest, you know, the the sets were enormous and we'd taken over this huge building and turned it into the restaurant because in the storyline, all the important details happened in this restaurant. And I knew that Dolly had an original copy of the book for the restaurant. So I sort of phoned her. It was, it was like about four in the morning, bless her. And she got up and she said, oh, I'm, I'm awake. It's okay. I'm going down. I'm going to look now. And she she sort of read recipes to me over the phone about, because it was a last minute job. And I got there and I went, oh my God, I've got to recreate these dishes. So I was able to call her because she's got a massive collection of fantastic historical books. I mean, I've got some, but she, I, I didn't have that one. Indulgers. Because we all love a bit of Downton. What's the atmosphere like? What are the casts like? Do you oh, know they're lovely, actually. Yeah, they're lovely. They're lovely. I mean, I know, I'm sure Hugh won't mind. We always have a laugh about Hugh's breakfast consumption, although I think he's become vegan. I mean, because I haven't worked lately, but certainly when I was working, for the 10 or 11 years I was working, breakfast was always, because there were so many breakfast scenes. Oh my God, we had endless breakfast scenes. So, sausages were his favourite and not only his but the crew's so I'd have to start off at the beginning you know series one you know get a couple of dozen sausages by the time we'd done series 10 or whatever it was I was getting like you know, sort of truckloads of sausages because, like, oh, she's here with the sausages. And on this one day, they changed the scene round because the sausages were made by my butchers and they're really fabulous sausages. And so I, I had to quickly go and get some other sausages because they weren't ready. And there was sort of complaints. So like, what's wrong with the sausages? Where was, where's my normal sausage? And I remember sending an assistant once and I said, I'll just get, you know, get my sausages. Like, take about, I don't know, take about 45. She went, what? What? I said, no, honestly, take about 45. They will get eaten. I mean, he didn't, it wasn't just you eating He didn't sausages. eat 45 sausages. <laughs> and please tell me, because I've never met him and I love him as an actor. Please tell me he's as lovely yes. as I think he is. Yes, he is. He's absolutely, in fact, yeah, towards then they were so naughty. They used to come on the truck and say, what cake have you got today, Lisa? Because we had the cut, you know, we had the truck and because we did lots of cakey things. Uh, oh God, and can I say about this one? When we were down at Goodwood, we were doing the racetrack and there was a buffet and things. And I think there was champagne because people shouldn't drink on set or anything. And I think there'd been a slight mix up with the labels, with the real champagne and the non-real champagne. Because in film worlds, when they have champagne, obviously it's not alcoholic, and but you have to have fizzy something. But somewhere along the way, things have got muddled up. <laughs> <laughs> and I think around about three o'clock, everybody was having a very good time. <laughs> and do you have to look after the drinks too? Does that come no, under your remit? No, that's a weird one. That's props. 
props do liquids. <laughs> um, occasionally, I might deem to put a flower on the liquid. But so um, you'll do gravy and liquids, edible liquids like that, but yes, not drink. Not drink because when there's a huge, you know, dinner and like twelve people around the table, if you can imagine. If 12 actors take a sip of their wine, supposed wine, which won't be wine, the glass has gone down. The poor prop boys are going to run around like mad, top it all up and get it to the same level. And they have this fantastic thing, which is like um, an infrared pen. So they mark the glass that you don't see. And then they have a light so they can see where to mark and put the liquid in back up to the top again, where they've had sips. So, because otherwise, if you're watching it over a period of time, the, the level of liquid in the glass is going to go up and down, up and down. So it'll almost strobe. Because you're all so good at your jobs. These yeah. are the things, of course, that we never notice. I yeah. love the stories that go on sort of behind the scenes. But it really does beg the question, you know, in your exciting film world is... How on earth did you become a food stylist? My careers officer oh. didn't offer food yes. stylists. No, well, I, I don't think it was a job, really. It wasn't a job. I um, I guess I'm suited because I was always an art ring girl. And I went to theatre school. I went to arts educational, which was very unfashionable at the time. Is that like fame? It, yes. yes. But fame didn't exist when I was so old. <laughs> it didn't exist. So, so I went, I can't believe I was a junior member of the Festival Ballet. Right. Which is yeah, hilarious. Anyway, I was slightly too tall in those days. So, because yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'd be now be all right. I'm now just too big. I couldn't possibly do that. <laughs> I went off and so I understand about theatre and drama and acting and I understand all that. Then I went and did sort of foundation art and then I thought I was going to sort of walk the boards and my mother said, um, I think you need a second string to your bow. It's a bit like, you know, I'm going to be an actress, which restaurant are you going to work in? So I went to learn to cook and then found myself doing the odd jobs bits and pieces and then I yes actually I was doing cooking and a lot of my friends who were actresses were my waitresses <laughs> I used to do parties and then you know so it was great they were all dancers everybody wanted me because they were all fabulous dancers and they'd sort of jeté across the kind of room with their canapes and oh, twirl and, and it was all marvelous so then I had a lovely friend who was a commercials producer and he said, oh, God, I need a yin and yang and tomato, ketchup and mustard. Can you come and do this? <laughs> Not too taxing. I think I can manage that one. It kind of opened up a whole world to me. And I just thought, oh, that was quite fun. And it's the same sort of thing. You know, it's like mass catering. And I know about, you know, the creativity and art, blah, blah, blah. So I started off doing stills, you know, books. And at that time, we weren't, because I'm so old. Um, but, <laughs> You're so um, <laughs> not old. And I was in my um, coffee while I'm yeah, loving your um, stories. We weren't so food savvy, actually. The Green Bay's door, which we had in downtown, was very much a divide, you know. the others, You were either one side of the Green Bay's door or the other. And I used to do house parties. I did used to go and cook properly for house parties, for shooting parties and things up in Scotland and all of that. And I always used to sit the other side of the green base door. So I got a foot in both camps, which is a bit weird. Gradually, bit by bit, the whole food explosion happened. You know, we, we started to have, you know, kind of world cuisine and blah, blah, blah. And people started to get more interested in food. And they couldn't cheat so much on dramas and things. Because if you look back at the films of the 50s, you know, 40s and 50s, it's so obviously a plastic chicken on the table, isn't it? I mean, it's not real. I mean, it's very, yeah, you know, or a terrible cake and that. So people became more food aware and we didn't want to see that. And then if the actors are eating, then it all started to be a bit like, well, who's going to do the food if the actors are eating and all these food scenes being written in? And so because I've done, you know, mass catering, that seems to be kind of logical. And then what happened is that over the last kind of, you know, whatever, eight years, all these platforms, Netflix, Paramount, you know, they've all got these productions they've got to fill their platforms with so the whole thing's just exploded you were involved in downtown from episode one but yeah. what were the other sort of big breaks if you like or the films that suddenly came along because you've, um, you've done so much work lisa it's extraordinary i mean you've done cold mountain and the duchess yeah well lots of different things yeah and i've done batman and oh yeah sitting there oh god it's very it's very varied you know sitting there oh madness 
So we're going to blow up this coffee shop. So can you make cakes? <laughs> I didn't spend a lot of time making cakes, but it's going to, eventually just going to be blown up. You know, sitting there, kind of crouched out while all these this whole thing's being blown up. So that's a lot of fun. And up in oh Romania, yeah, I had to have armed guards because there were bears in the woods. Really? Yeah, and I'd have all the food. In well, that was cold mountain. Was that cold mountain? Of and we it was. literally would go up the mountain. Oh yes, that was a great. Yeah, that's a great story. They built, because this is quite, it was quite wild, I, I did Coal Mountain, and they had the what's called the Greens Department go out and actually grow the vegetables, build the farm, because it was sort of inexpensive. And they didn't have any, you know, pylons or anything. So it was like going back to sort of, you know, 1780 or whatever it was set in. So they grew this farm with vegetables and things. And we had this scene. It's when Nicole comes in and she plays the piano on the back of the van. And then she comes in and she has a bowl of soup. And we had about five or six scenes to shoot that day. And we had torrential rain, like you would not believe. And because it was, uh, the reason they shot in Romania was that it was quite um, inexpensive to build all the sets. So they didn't just build the front of buildings, which they often do. They actually built roofs, sides. So we had four walls and a roof, which was kind of nice. To get there every day was a mission. We'd go up the mountain. We literally went up the mountain as a whole massive group. And so there's no nipping off to Sainsbury's or, you know, the local shop. down We were there. Anything I took, I had to take up there. So the rain started. And so they said, OK, we'll flip the scene. We'll do the soup scene first. Well, the rain didn't stop. And I'm thinking, oh, I've made the soup. This is all marvellous. OK, I seem to be running out. And what are we going to do? So they'll finish in a minute. It'll all be fine. It'll all be fine. So we kept going. We kept going and think, oh, we're running out. So I said, I know. So I went out literally into the farm and dug up the vegetables that they had been growing, washed them down under the pump. I mean, you know, threw it in the pan, made some more soup. And Nicole said, this is the best soup I've ever tasted. And Anthony said, amazing. We're really living this. We're really living this. And we did that soup all day. And I literally just had to keep going out and digging it out of the ground, <laughs> washing down the vegetables. And I have to say, it was delicious because it was all organic vegetables straight from oh, the ground. Delicious. And it was about, she must have had about 90 bowls of soup that did day. she really have she 90 did. bowls of soup and I'm so glad she's still recovering I know but I'm glad I think oh thank goodness we had a weekend off afterwards because I just thought I don't want to know one of the lovely things is not knowing what layers ahead you know I get a phone call and say can you just come and do a couple of pigs in Guadalajara yeah fine okay you know and I'm off and also I get to go to fantastic places I also did Delicious with Dawn French oh, and Amelia Fox. Oh, I love Fox. Dawn French and, and Amelia Fox. And yes, that was just one of the down in Cornwall. And we did scenes on the beach and we had lots of days where we were just literally cooking on the beach, paddling around. The sun was out, boiling pulpo on the beach. That was a really, really lovely job. We did three years of that. When we didn't get recommissioned... Everybody just went into a complete demise. And we almost had to have a help group <laughs> because we weren't working. Um, now, one thing that you did that I'm not ashamed to say I've never watched. I'm hoping you're saying I should because I'm way behind. But I never watched Outlander. Oh, that was blood and gore and lots of animals and with heads and feet, which is brilliant in Scotland because you could get it all. So it's so easy because a lot of my problem is especially now, it's really difficult getting things with beaks and feet uh, because of my butcher, who's now retired. How very dare he? How can um, he possibly um, retire? Because he used to keep us sort of under-the-counter supply for me in the freezer. Beaks and claws and uh, stuff and like all that. all sorts of things because it's because of, you know, butchery and the way the rules have changed. It is quite challenging. So it is game farms and things that I've now got contacts with. So up in Scotland, it's all marvellous. They're much more rugged. What I'm interested in is, is your background, Lisa, as well, because you had quite an unusual growing up in that you grew up with racehorses. Didn't yes. you? And we were talking before we started recording the podcast, we had coffee in your gorgeous garden and you were telling me about what it was like foaling and all that kind of thing. Will you tell us a little bit about growing up and mum and dad and what they did? I was really lucky. I grew up in Warwickshire near Stratford-on-Avon on, near the river and my parents bred racehorses, which was lovely. They did it together. My father also was a metallurgist, so he had... Um, a, a you know, large company and employ people across the world, precious metals, etc. So I think that was his sort of down 
time to enjoy being in the countryside and doing something with my mother together. And so they did for a very, very long time. And as we grew up, I think, you know, the horses became surrogate babies. So it was a real privilege. We had, they fold at home. I mean, the, the, the basically they went away to stud and then the broodmares would come home and they'd be in foal and then they'd fold at home. And we'd have these wonderful babies at home looking, you know, absolutely wonderful. And I was telling you the story about my mother. See, good, good training for filming because it was my mother and I in our ski suits in the freezing cold waiting for some broodmare to fold because you've got to keep an eye on them because they start to nest and you just want to make sure that when they're born, you don't really want to leave a racehorse foaling on their own. My mother and I would be sort of freezing down there, sitting there waiting for the mare to do something. And then it was sort of time for my father to perhaps have an eye on what's going on. He said, I'm not doing that. So he had electricity, because this is a long time ago. I mean, nowadays you'd have Wi-Fi and it'd be very easy. So this was a sort of basic CCTV, which was then rigged up to their bedroom so that they could watch the mares from the warmth of the house and your bed. But if you're walking past their bedroom, there'd be these terrible rustling of hay and sort of the odd fart of a horse. (laughs) (laughs) What is going on in there? Oh, that's so lovely. But yeah, so it was lovely. So... I'm used to muck and bullets, I guess. So a lot of this job is muck and bullets, I would say. You can't be precious. My first job ever in life was driving a tractor, driving the grain trailer, actually. I wanted to go and drive the combine harvester. That was my ambition. I was never allowed. But <laughs> so I'm used to kind of moving bales of hay. Well, there's a lot of lugging in this job. I don't need to go to the gym. I, there's a lot of carrying. That's pretty um, physical, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's a very, you've got to lay the car up. You're just going to get it in. You got everything you can possibly think of. It all just gets shoved in, off you drive, early hours in the morning. My front door has stickers all down the back, all my post-it notes, because there's certain things that I might put in the fridge. You know, I've got various fridges sort of scattered around. I'm often leaving at 5.30 in the morning. My brain doesn't function at 5. <laughs> so I'm just reliant to the, the post-it notes on the back of the front door as to stuff that I've got to get out of the fridge. Because I can stand at the fridge and go, what am I taking? You know, my brain's not working. You know, sling the last bit and off we go. And then, as you say, you're back last and then you've got to unload the car and stick it through the dishwasher. They're and definitely long hours. Did, very- did any growing up, was, were there any stories that really inspired you food-wise growing up? Because obviously you've yeah. had a, a love of food before you got into the crazy world of film and adverts and television. You were a very good chef. Yeah. So did, you know, did you grow up with lovely food? Was mum yes. cook? I mean, we're very much a family that sat around the table and ate and talked and made a lot of noise. And food is pretty central. If I think, sadly, my father died at the beginning of this year and we were gathering together photographs going throughout his life to make a montage and so many photographs way way back even when we're small we're round a table <laughs> it seems to be endless meals and it was you know, because it's a great you know food's a great sort of knitter together of people isn't it so knitter and, together it's an equalizer it's yeah. uh, time to tell your stories of the day I yes mean, yeah at home i get into trouble a bit because with my family i try and insist that yeah we try where we can we're all yeah. freelance and running around yeah, yeah. the kids are busy mm-hmm. But I think it's important, if you can, most nights to sit down and enjoy yes, totally. your meal and, and chat and yeah. not make it about just eating for sustenance. But no. actually, that's the time where you tell your stories of the day and what's It happened. is. It's the interaction. It's totally the interaction. And quite often, I, I do get worried sometimes that people have kind of got too much emphasis on the food. It's got to be all because, you know, there's all this sort of television food chefs giving slight pressure. It doesn't really matter. In fact, you know, if it's only baked beans on toast, it's about the collective. If you can cook, then marvellous. But and even if you've just got something like three things in your repertoire, does it matter? If that's what you're good at. My mum's got a favorite. She does salmon with peppers and rice. It's delicious. How many times have I eaten this this year? I can't. I mean, probably hundreds at this point. But it's delicious. It doesn't matter. It's something she can do because she's 88. She can do it really easily. The other thing that I learned when we were having our cake in coffee in the garden is we are lucky to have you Lisa aren't we because you had 
Yes, because you had quite a nasty accident growing up. Yeah, you? and here we go as sort of countdown to my teeth being just about to be rebuilt this afternoon. Again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it was already lovely being with horses. They've been, you know, throughout my life. But I'm very lucky because when I was young, when I was about 13, I was supposed to be packing my trunk to go to school and I didn't. I jumped on a horse that was at home that had been sold, actually, and was going. So I wanted the last ride. And he was stung by a hornet and went over a five-bar gate from a standstill because we were standing under a tree and it went upside down and I got rather mangled, broken back, pelvis, ribs, internal bleeding, blah, 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 blah. And I got the last glance of a bash in the mouth with a hoof, which wrecked my jaw and my teeth. But amazingly, although they were dead, they stayed in my head, not going black or doing anything weird until I was in my 30s. And then I had my children and then things started to go wrong. So long story short, I've had various things and we had implants and I had a bit of a problem last year and COVID took over. So the third problem got rather larger. So you're going to be fixed. So, so I'm going to be fixed. You so I'm off. going to be fixed in an hour and a half. I'm oh, going to be... <laughs> crumbs. Before you get fixed, I sort of made up a little quick fire round to end yeah. on. Dish you're most proud of or a big dish that you've done on set that you think, wow, that was amazing. You know, whether oh. it be a wedding cake or a... Oh, what? Oh, there's so many, she says, very <laughs> modestly. Oh, crikey. Well, it's normally a big banquet. It's normally, it's normally the collective, oh, God, yeah, I actually, going back to downtown. <laughs> <laughs> I love going back to downtown. For the film, God bless them, I did... A really, because it was, if you, I can, yes, I can talk about the film. I saw the film. Yeah, you saw the film. So, you know, the king was coming for supper or dinner, should I say, not supper, it was dinner, very much dinner. And then we had the royal household and we had the royal household doing his cooking and Mrs. Patmore had to get rid of it. Oh, yeah, we didn't talk about that. No, go on, tell me. The bit when Mrs. Patmore was getting rid of the chef from the royal household and the butler and all the food gets flicked down the front of the shirt because it was scripted as chocolate and of course the wardrobe department said well we've only got because they're period shirts we've only got so many and we you've got to do the change round and once we've done one flick down the front gonna have to take all the clothes off and start again oh it's to do with the jacket that's right it was a moleskin jacket oh oh, yeah so uh, because it was a period piece so it was what are you actually going to use so I spent three days sort of making this viscous mess and throwing it at the wall to see how it could stick, how long it would stick for, could we scrape it off? And I think even at one point, my partner, I had to stand there in a jacket when I threw, <laughs> threw food at him. Just <laughs> a whole other area of life. And anyway, so we did that. And then the idea was that Mrs. Patmore had created this amazing food, which I did. I spent days doing and then listen we put it all on the table in the downstairs you know in the kitchen and then they lined up all the cast to do the scene so literally they obscured everything on that table <laughs> so just between little glimpses between two hips and somebody's shoulder you can see a bit of roast beef or a magnificent with the whole, there's a lot going on behind those people oh, can I, I tell you I hope you've got some photographs I of have that. got photographs of that because that was lovely you know I, I think the stuff I did for Alienist was pretty epic actually was it yeah that was because also for me in my head that you wouldn't know is the logistics of getting in which was absolutely epic because it was such a huge building and we had to go up such enormous staircases with fridges <laughs> God, and the heat was unbelievable and then we were miles away from the actual set it was quite epic that and we created beautiful dining rooms and ran for amazing dishes and things that was a bit of a struggle in the fire that was like up 24 hours but uh, yeah I was kind of really proud proud of that what about the weirdest ingredients that you've cooked with well this year's been interesting where are we can I talk about I can talk about this I don't know whether I should say which production it is because it's sort of slightly, it's only just started, so it's very current. Okay. But we, I had to make edible bats. Edible bats? Edible bats. Yeah. And I get the script that says, and the girl sits up and eats the head off the crow. So I, oh, marvellous. Okay, who dreams this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, well, yeah, so this was lovely. Oh, God. So I had to make crow's heads, and then I worked with the, the model maker, and she's going to rip the head of the crow in one bite. 
So it all got very complicated because then I, and bless her, she was, uh, thankfully she ate sugar and she ate everything. Because that's when, it's when people don't eat anything, all sorts of stuff. So I could just use marzipan. So I dyed the marzipan and I used a cigaretto up the middle of the, of the head. And for the world, it looked like really good crow's head, really good. And then I dyed it red inside. So it's all fantastic. And then they said, ah, we can't get crows. So we've got ravens. <laughs> They've been to the Tower of London. Yeah. So can you now make it look at raven? So I got the mould. I've done crows. I'm now going to do ravens. A raven's beak is different. So a raven's beak is slightly pointed and it wasn't sitting so well. I was getting droopy raven's beak. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely don't want droopy raven's beak. And then very sweetly, we had the real ravens. And the actress had to, oh, God, she was up on this sort of big plinth. And it was, again, it was in February and driving snow. It could not have been colder. And Mackenzie Crook is the, the director, and he was very gracious. And he just said, uh, you know, over to you. So I had to climb up this ladder with the raven. But we had real ravens to start off with, and they have to hop over the girl because she's supposed to be dead. But what I was told by the handler was the real ravens can't see the pretend raven because they get upset. So we have to be aware of the raven sensitivity. They get very upset because it's not, because, you know, I had to put eyes in and all sorts of sugar eyes. I'm going down, you know, looking up sugar eyes on the web. <laughs> get, you know. So we had to get rid of the real ravens. And then I had to climb up the ladder in the driving hand her this raven and then it was great it was fantastic she did sit up I've got it I've got it on and she sat up and she just bites the head off and everything's bright pink and gory and we got it in one take thank oh. god she was amazing and Mackenzie was brilliant. he just said done we don't need to labour that do you know it really has been such a treat coming here we're in Wimbledon which is a beautiful part of the world from the very first day I met you when we went for a beach stroll oh, yes. in the Isle of Wight and we talked about things like this I knew you'd be a fabulous podcast and I think it's been fascinating, Lisa, because I think when we watch things like Bridgerton and Downton and all the different things you've done, you just don't ever think about what's gone behind the scenes yeah. with the food. But now I do, having talked to you when we watched the Downton film the other day, I kept saying to my daughter, I bet Lisa did that. Yes, How did it Lisa is. do that? I wonder if that's full of gelatin. Yeah. You know, and, yeah and it's fascinating. Totally. So thank you for having yeah. me. And it's oh, been a great you. coming into your kitchen because oh. this is where a lot of that magic happens, isn't it? it? Totally. It's where everything happens, as you can see. I mean, <laughs> 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 yeah, it does. No, it's been fun to talk about, actually. Oh, I mean, unless I start rattling on, I mean, there's plenty more to say. I oh, think, but, well, I think know. we might have to do a part two at some point. Yeah, it'll be, yeah, be yeah, lovely, and I'll yeah. come and have a, a rifle through your jelly molds another yeah, time maybe if we I'm allowed. Do so. Yeah, we could we could do we could make a jelly together, or we could make a charlotte mousse or something together. Gosh, you obviously know that I can't cook. You don't. Yes. Know that I can't cook at all. That would <laughs> be quite do a challenge. That'd let's quite do fun. it. That'd let's be quite do fun. it. I'd love yeah, to do that. Quite fun. Thank you so much, Lisa, and I hope this afternoon goes well for you too. Oh yes, that'll be it. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. You have been listening to food stylist. Lisa Heathcote, who's been so generous with tales from the sets and sharing some of her culinary secrets from working on some of the best films and dramas. Don't forget to download our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, or just ask Alexa. I'll be back next week with another great guest, so please do join me there.